The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, March 5th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. It's good to see you guys. My name is Robert. I am one of the pastors here and I get the privilege this morning of taking the next several minutes to lead us in a time together in God's Word. And before we jump into that this morning, I just wanted to take a, a moment, just, just a second. Um, I, I don't know if you've recognized it coming in, if you recognize it now, but what we have right here, right now, is an absolute miracle of God's grace. The vast majority of men and women and children who live in Richmond didn't wake up this morning with any inkling in their heart to gather together with others, to worship, to give their hearts, their lives, their souls to the true and living God in worship. And for those across the city who have, like you sitting right here, right now, with us, is God's very spirit present with us to open up our hearts to his word. I don't know, it hit me this morning in a different way. We, we can't simply allow ourselves to get used to this. We can't allow ourselves to take this miracle of his grace for granted. We need it. Because we desperately need him now. We need him to do what only he can do to shine a light into the reality of our hearts. Listen, I don't know if you really believe this or not, but there is not a single person in this room, yourself included, that has a perfect sense of self-awareness. Right, as long as we live in between Jesus' resurrection and his promised return, between the establishment and the fullness and consummation of his kingdom, as long as we live right here, right now, with the presence of sin and the reality of sin dwelling within us, there is not a one of you that will actually be able to see your heart accurately. Friends, that's the essential difference between someone who is physically blind and you and I who are spiritually blind. I don't know if you ever had the privilege of having someone in your life who, who was physically blind. But here's the thing. They know it. They're very well aware of it. And if you've had the privilege to do life with someone who is physically blind, you know that they, they make it part of their mission, in a sense, to not live by that restriction of their blindness. They know it, though. You and I, we, we're blind to our spiritual blindness. As one writer says, we require moment by moment the convicting combination of God's word and his spirit, and how we handle our money, steward our time, care for our bodies, use our minds, live in our relationships, and just do our daily life and work. 
without the moment-by-moment dependence upon his very spirit, you and I are just left stumbling around in our blindness, in our darkness, unaware of how our lives are being driven by unhealthy and dangerous desires. But it's the Spirit of God that uniquely cuts through our blindness and helps us to actually see ourselves with, man, what I could only call a startling accuracy. And he is here with us this morning. Christian, he is with you every moment of every day. But this kind of gracious exposure of our blindness, this convicting exposure of our blindness, this empowering grace in response to it, it's not just like this automatic process that happens. There is a level of intentionality that is required on our part. A surrender, a slowness, a dependence. All things that are in short supply today in a culture that has fallen prey to the pretension, to the plausible lie that the good life is a cocktail of endless choice and personal ambition and hurry shaken together with a twist of Jesus added to it. What we need He's ever ready to supply. Let's ask him this morning to help us to see that we might begin to truly live. Holy Spirit, we we can have such darkened and cold, inconsistent and easily distracted hearts next few minutes, we ask that you would do what only you can do, and you would bring a stillness to our heart, a stillness to our soul, that you would open up our hearts to hear your word, that we might receive what you have for us as good, that we would feed on it and take it in with joy. We ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen. If I were to ask you to raise your hand, which I won't ask you to do, who here would raise their hand and admit that you're slothful? A couple people did. I wasn't going to ask you to. But, I mean, the vast majority of us would probably not raise our hands to that question. I imagine if I were to actually say that I observed your life and thought that you were slothful, your first response would probably be defensiveness. You probably wouldn't like it, right? I don't know if it would help you in that if we understood that back in the day in church history when church fathers would teach and preach on the various vices of the heart, of which sloth was one. The way that they would speak of sloth is not entirely consistent with the way that you and I speak about it. 
The way that you would find in the history of the church, the church fathers speaking of sloth, would not just be pigeonholed to the kind of laziness that you and I associate with it. They would speak equally to a slothfulness that was seen in a life that was very busy, but it was busy with all the wrong things. A slothful life was a busy life, but busy with the wrong things. So if I ask the question again, I wonder how many of you would be willing to reconsider your initial answer? How many of you might be willing to allow the Holy Spirit to help you see what you might be blind to in your own heart? I found the story that Ashley Hale wrote in her life about a, in her book about a spacious life being so helpful in this. I'm going to read it, and she's going to speak about a particular time and season in her life, and it's a time and a season that may not be immediately relatable to everyone in here, but underneath what she describes are things that are very true for every single one of us if we slow down and listen. This is what she wrote. When I lived in an affluent suburb, the good life looked like women fueled by coffee, workouts, and winding down the day with wine. We spent our afternoons driving children to practices and math groups. To earn love, we attempted to stay small, put healthy-ish meals on the table, and get the kids wherever they needed to go. And in our haste, we wondered where we'd gone feeling out of touch with the meatier things of life. Many of us opted for spa days, target runs, and book clubs that we hoped would bring levity, camaraderie, and even hope. The men in our lives felt disconnected from the very lives of their children, working long hours to afford the good life. But when they were home, they were all there. They were in classrooms and coaching on basketball courts and walking the kids to school. They worked to provide the vacations as a reward for all the work that they had done. As if a week in Hawaii or skiing in Colorado would replenish our weary and worn out souls. Now listen to what she says. Everyone was all in. All in for our kids all in for our jobs, all in for our hobbies, all in for our political causes, all in for our arts, all in for our ministries. And she was a ministry director at the time. But the all-in life always asked for more. More time, more energy, more emotion. The all-in life always left us empty and exhausted. Driven by constant hurry, comparison, and competition, and underneath it all, a sense that we have to keep on earning our worth with one another. We hoped that working harder, achieving more, and doing more would be the ingredients that will create the feast of a good life. And we hope it would happen in record time. In the pursuit of this freedom, we instead served our work. Desperate for rest, 
and yet so very fearful of it. Hustle and hurry were not just what we do. They had become states of the soul. A do-more life. A do-more vision of the good life drains us of energy, compassion, and peace. The magazines, the self-help books, you can, you can, you can date the book right there. The, the Instagram feeds, the Facebook posts, they tell us that this is the good life. But the kingdom of God says otherwise. This do more life, this do more, be more picture of the good life, it's fueled today by a 24-7 reality of connection to the outside world. For all of the blessings that technology has brought into our life, it also keeps our hearts and our souls riled up all day long, infinitely connected to everything in the world outside of us and around us, while keeping us distracted from what's actually going on inside of us. A.J. Swoboda was writing about this reality of the do more, be more version of the good life. When he said, all of our time-saving devices, technological conveniences, and cheap mobility, while seemingly making life much easier and interconnected, yet as a result, they've given us more information at our fingertips than anyone in history, and our souls, while prepared for meaning and value and truth, are withering away, exhausted, frazzled, displeased, and ever on the edge. The result, he said, is a hollow culture, always learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Always learning. More to know, more to do, an answer for this, a fix for this, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Our bodies, he said, are ragged. Our spirits thirst. We have become perhaps the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, and spiritually malnourished people in history. Chasing the good life. This cocktail of options, personal ambition, and hurry, shaken up together with a twist of Jesus. The reality of it is, friends, a day is going to come, and for some of you it may have already come, a day is going to come when your soul can no longer bear the weight of your life. When your soul can, can no longer hold up under the weight of this chase for a picture of the do-more version of the good life. Now, the world around us has defined this reality as burnout. But I appreciate the way that Henry Nouwen defined it. Nouwen, a former priest who experienced 
This moment in his life when his soul could no longer hold up under the weight of the life he was living. He said burnout was simply a convenient psychological translation for what was really happening. The spiritual death. Utter emotional exhaustion. Psychological overwork. Spiritually malnourished. Violence done to the soul. The reality of it is, friends, in the life of God's people, more than we might want to admit, we are conforming to this pattern of the world rather than being a transforming presence in the midst of it. We've done it in the past, and we won't do it this morning. I'm sure we'll speak of it in the future, but we are just as overloaded. If you look at the stories and the numbers, just as anxious in soul, just as critical, just as defensive, and just as frazzled and on edge as the world around us. And the question that God has been putting in front of me and exposing in my own heart and my own life is what do our overloaded and depleted souls say to a watching world about Jesus? What do they actually say about what it means to do life with him? About his invitation to be with him freely and lightly. What I'm having to come to grips with in this startling accuracy that God by his spirit gives and the blindness that he removes is that if I'm really honest, I've probably been telling a lie with my life about the value of Jesus in life with him in his kingdom. Got answers, can talk about it. Always getting more information about it while not yet coming to a living reality of the truth. And it's not a, a matter of simply finding a way to better manage your time, do more, work harder, Organize this. It's not that at all. The issue is you and I have to allow God to redefine what the good life is according to his kingdom. We have to allow God to redefine the good life for us according to Jesus. Friends, the invitation of Jesus was not an invitation to an overloaded soul. A depleted soul, a hurried soul, a cynical soul, an anxious soul, a troubled soul, a competitive soul. That isn't the invitation. If you've got your Bibles, open it up to the gospel according to Matthew, Matthew chapter 11. We're going to be in a couple of places in the gospel this morning, and I want us to first hear again and consider the actual invitation of Jesus. Make sure we're hearing it rightly first. Matthew chapter 11. We're going to listen to Jesus, verses 25 through 30. Matthew records it this way. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. 
Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All the things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus did not say, come to me and I'll make you more efficient. I'll make you better organized. I'll make you more successful. He said, come to me and I'll give you rest for your soul. The way of Jesus and the way of his kingdom is a way of living that is rooted and anchored in deep and abiding soul rest. If you listen to him, he's telling us that the wisdom of the world is not going to take you there. Right? His wisdom, his way to life and to rest, it's hidden from them. It's hidden from them. Following the patterns of the world and the rhythms of the world, those who are wise in their own eyes, it's not going to lead you to what your soul really needs. It's just going to lead to a path and a way of life that does damage to your soul. It'll wear you out, overload, frazzle, deplete, in a hurry. It might take you down a path that it tells you is the path to the good life. This is what it holds out. This is what it looks like. But it's a life that only increases and stacks up the burdens upon burdens upon burdens and ultimately enslaves. Friends, Jesus is not seen as glorious when his church is just as worn out, frazzled, and emptied, chasing the same things as the world. He's simply not. We were reading something recently at home, and the way the writer said it was just, again, strikingly honest, that it, it pierced straight down to the depths of the soul. He said, you and I in every moment in life, with each conversation we enter into, with each moment we enter into, with each decision that we make, we are either telling the truth about who Jesus is and the invitation and life in his kingdom that he has brought us into or we are lying about him. There's no middle ground there. The way of Jesus is marked by a rest of soul. I love the way that Eugene Peterson has paraphrased this section of Matthew 11 in the message. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me. 
and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Is your life free and light? Do you know this freedom? You know this lightness. This freedom, this rest comes as our heart begins to prioritize the value of being with Jesus. Our sloth, our hurried and busied life, busy but pointed at all the wrong things, driven in all the wrong directions sometimes, hurried but not with the necessary and essential things. It reminds me of a familiar story in Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 10. So if you've got your Bible, flip over to the right a little bit. Matthew, Mark, then go to Luke. Luke 10. If you've grown up in the church, uh, maybe if you've just been around church people or church culture, the story or at least portions of the story might be familiar to you. It's a story of Jesus and his interaction with two sisters. It's in Luke chapter 10. It, it starts in verse 38. Luke tells us that as, as they were all on their way, Jesus entered into a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha, verse 40, was distracted with much serving. Distracted from what? Right? The essence of distraction is missing something for something else. Distracted from what? Distracted from who? Martha was distracted from simply being with Jesus. She was so captivated and so focused on all that she felt she had to do that she was distracted from just being with Jesus and she's missing out on him. In this slice of life, this, this is a momentary moment in the story of what is their entire life, her right now was shaped by her shoulds, her sense of what she should do, the list of things that were on her to-dos in this moment. And here's the thing, it all looked good. There was a lot to it. It was much serving that she was doing. And it was good. And in the time in which Jesus and Mary and Martha were here, all that she was doing are things that would have been natural and expected of her to do to welcome a teacher like Jesus into her home. Not only is she doing good things, Good things for Jesus, right? Not only are you doing good things for Jesus, at your jobs, with your friends, in your relationships, in your homes, Martha was doing good things. 
And she was convinced that Mary needed to be doing the same thing as well. She went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that she's left me to serve alone? Tell her to get up and help me. Martha not only knew what should be done, she not only knew what there was to do, but she was certain of what Mary should be doing as well. And so she went to Jesus and said, make her do it. But here in the story, the much doing of Martha, it it only goes to serve and expose a much deeper reality. Verse 41, the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. When Jesus or someone in those days repeats a word, it's, there's an emphasis here. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. See, it was Martha's grumbling to Jesus that actually begins to expose what's really going on in her heart. Love for Jesus was not motivating and moving her to serve to do all these things. Jesus put his finger right on the motivation. Anxiety was causing her to. She had an inner turmoil of soul that was being driven by what could be any number of misplaced fears, a heart captured by the concerns and the cares of the world in which she lived, What will he think of what I'm doing? Will he appreciate it? Is this house and what I'm offering him as as nice or or up to snuff at everywhere else he's been? Did people next door see him come into our house? What are they going to think? What am I going to have to deal with with regard to that? Will he like what I'm doing? Or am I going to be a failure? not able to provide what what, what he's accustomed to. Mary, get up and help me. Why aren't you doing this, right? Am I actually capable? In that moment, again, it's just a moment. It's not the totality of her world, but in that moment, we're getting a glimpse of what's going on on the inside. In that moment, she began to do, to architect her, her life in that moment, to keep control in that moment, to keep those fears from actually coming true. She architected that moment with Jesus and the disciples with the control that she could exercise in an effort to keep all that she was really afraid of and anxious about from actually coming true. It's just a momentary example of how you and I live day in and day out. She thought in a moment that she knew what it was she really needed. And like the majority of us, we all misdiagnose what it is we really need. Jesus said it's left her anxious and troubled. And because she didn't stop and just listen to Jesus, to be with Jesus, She was forfeiting the calm, the peace, rest in soul that she desperately needed. Jesus says this, verse 42, 
one thing is necessary. But put yourself in her shoes. Everything feels necessary in that moment. Everything feels pressing. It's the Messiah who's entered into her house. She's aware. Everything she thinks she should be doing, everything that she thinks she can do to control the things she's afraid of actually happening or people thinking, it all seemed urgent and necessary, but ultimately, everything is unnecessary when it comes in competition with being with Jesus. The enemy of our soul will try to make everything feel more urgent and more essential than just being with Jesus. But in the end, he said, only one thing is truly necessary. Only one truly necessary thing. And he said, Mary has chosen, I love this word, the good portion. To Martha, maybe to everybody else in the room, Mary looked irresponsible. Mary looked like what you and I would define as slothful, lazy. But it was all love. For Mary, it was all gain. For Mary, it was true peace and contentment. For Mary, it was experiencing the freedom and lightness and rest of soul that can only come from being with Jesus. Whatever they must have thought, whatever fear could have crept in her mind about what she should be doing or could be doing or was supposed to be doing, it was no sacrifice to her to sit there. Because to be with him was all gain to her soul. The fountain of living water was sitting in that room. In her anxiousness, Martha was trying to drink from broken cisterns, broken jars, busy with the wrong things, and left anxious and troubled in heart. One thing is necessary. Mary's chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. The good that Jesus gives can't be taken away. Friends, there is no better word to hear this morning for frazzled, depleted, overloaded, anxious, hearts and souls that are on the edge. The good, Jesus says, that I give, you will never, ever lose. Keep company with me, as Peterson paraphrased Matthew 11. Keep company with me, Jesus says, and you'll learn to live today, tomorrow, the next day, moment by moment by moment, freely and lightly. Mary prioritized being with Jesus. That's the point. She prioritized the only necessary, good, secure thing for her soul.
That's the very thing that's so easy for you and I to exchange, to lose in this present world that holds out for us a different vision of the good life that's built on doing more and being more, yet only leaves us increasingly troubled and anxious, unsteady in soul. Mary sitting to be with Jesus, it didn't look like she was doing anything. But Jesus helps us to see if we'll see that it was the most important thing he wanted done in that moment. She had what she needed to be done, what she thought was most important. Jesus helps us to see that what Mary was doing was the most important thing he wanted done. Same thing holds true for you and I. The thing that has just gripped my heart over the last several months is just an an awakening to the reality that I think in in our culture we've built churches around helping people to know more and more true things about Jesus and then moving them forward to do more and more good things for Jesus while neglecting the necessary, only good and secure thing for their soul, the priority of learning how to be with Jesus, how to be with him. And the result is we're just as distracted, just as escapist, just as hurried in heart as the world. Not free, not light. Chasing a life that looks just like everyone else, but with a twist of Jesus. Not having the soul level rest that he invites us into with him. Not knowing and depending upon the exposing grace and empowering work of his spirit moment by moment. We know plenty. We're always learning more. We're busy. But have we neglected the most necessary, only truly good, safe and secure place for our soul? Have we neglected a living and abiding relationship with Jesus by his spirit, moment by moment? Now the good news is that restoration of this is possible it's possible it's possible to know the freedom and the lightness of life day by day being with Jesus it comes down to what you want though it's a matter of of what we really want When was the last time you truly experienced a real connection, intimacy with the person of Jesus by his spirit? Really, really, you were honest with him. Really honest with him. When you slowed down enough 
to ask him by his spirit to help you see the blindness in your heart, the things that you were blind to as you stepped into a decision that you were going to make in a moment. Maybe you've begun to realize that you've been really busy chasing after the good life with a twist of Jesus that looks really good on the outside. But that taste of his nearness, that reality of a soul-level dependence on the presence of his spirit moment by moment that maybe we knew when he captured our hearts, that relational nearness and connection now Maybe you've gotten to the place where you would say, I don't really have much present interest in that. I know right things about Jesus. I'm doing what I can to do good things for Jesus. I don't know that my heart has much interest in Jesus beyond that. Listen, friends, the desire to know him and enjoy him and be with him, can be renewed. I I love the way that Ruth Barton says it. She says, I'd go so far as to say that this desire, we can and should actually allow it to deepen into desperation. And that desperation is a really good place for a Christian to be. It sounds funny because there's all this victorious talk that we have, but when one of us is desperate enough for the presence of God in our soul, that we're willing to change our lives, that we're willing to seek no matter what the cost, that's a really good place to get to. When someone hits the place where they realize no matter how much success I'm experiencing in my external world, in my internal world, I'm empty on the inside. He says at that point, you've got to let yourself want it. You have to let yourself want being with him bad enough to rearrange how you live. You've got to go all the way down to the bottom of your desire and trust him to meet you there. Like any relationship, it requires an intentionality. You have to slow down. You have to want it so bad that you say yes to it and no to all the other voices and other things that are overcrowding, overloading, and weighing down our lives. Yes, to the only necessary, good, secure thing for our soul. You have to deny that old self addiction and craving to the hurry, to the more, to the do more, have more, be more vision of the good life. You have to deny that old self's addiction to how our busy lives make us look and seem important and significant to other people. This is the way Peterson wrote it in his essay, The Unbusy Pastor, but it applies to all of us. 
What better way to seem important and significant to others than to appear to be busy? The incredible hours, the crowded schedule, the heavy demands on time, they're just proof to myself and to everyone else who will look at me that I'm important. I want to be important. That's why I develop a busy life and a crowded schedule and live in harassed conditions. When others notice, they acknowledge my significance and my vanity is fed. The busier I am, the more important I am, right? If I'm not busy, if you don't ask me how I'm doing and I don't say, man, I'm just so busy and I can rattle off the 10,000 things I, my wife, or my kids are doing or I'm doing for them, then what kind of person, man, father, Christian, leader am I? You might think I'm incapable, lazy. You might think I am indulgent. Who knows? But you see, friends, those are the fears that drive us right back into the merry-go-round of the hurry and the do more and away from the rest and the way of Jesus away from a qualitatively different way of living. Do we want him? Do we want his rest for our soul? Do you want his way that is free and light? Do you want his spirit exposing you to your blindness and leading you into freedom? Do you want his way and his rest for your soul enough to change the way you live? Have you hit the place where you can say, I'm empty on the inside? And it might look really good to everyone else on the outside. It might tick all the boxes for everyone around me. But I don't know. And I'm not sure that I really even desire anymore the present reality of enjoying and being with Jesus. Are you willing to ask him to take you to that point of desperation? Are you willing to ask him to help expose to you your own blindness? Are you willing to ask him to help you to see all the ways that you're so easily pleased and satisfied with this vision of the good life? To do more and and be more with the twist of the church wrapped around it. Are you willing to, to ask him to help you see how you're blind to the way that you're living and the decisions that you're making that are actually driven and motivated by your own desire to build your own kingdom to look a particular way? Are you desperate enough for the rest and the freedom and the lightness that only he can provide for the soul that you'll ask him to help you see, to bring you to himself moment by moment? Friends, what is it that you want? Like he asked last week to the disciples when they passed by, what is it that you're really seeking The God of the universe is still speaking this morning, right now. Hear his voice calling you by name this morning. Hear him inviting you to come, to be with him, 
to enjoy him, the one necessary thing, the one satisfying thing, the one safe thing. We all, we all want things that don't lead to the rest and the life that only he can provide. That old self is so addicted to all these other things, the, the hurry and, and the vain glory that all of it tends to provide. It's present and active in all of us. We all make decisions that do not lead to enjoying and being with Jesus. And we're blind to it. The invitation that Jesus is holding out is, is for you to Invite him to examine the ways that you want everything but him and you can't even see it. To ask and to invite his spirit to continually examine all the wants that drive the hurry, drive the overload, drive the busy, drive the frazzle that only lead to a burdensome life. For him to expose those things that we're even blind to so that we can turn from them, deny them. He can lead us on the path of repentance, turning from them to Jesus. He's not inviting you to, to do better and figure out how to get time with him. Like, I know you're going to hear this like, okay, how am I going to re-architect and reorient my, my day and my schedule so I can just sit and be with Jesus? He's not inviting you to do more and fix more. He's inviting you to want him. He's inviting you to this place of desperation where you can't go another moment, you can't go another way if it's not by him and his spirit. That place where Moses stood and God showed him the promised land and said, you can have it all, but I'm not gonna go with you. And he said, if you're not gonna go with me, I don't want any of it. He's inviting us to want him. want to see our blindness and inviting us to a desperation to not live without him showing us all of our misguided desires so that we can truly want him. What is it you want? What is it you're seeking? We're going to give you a couple of minutes here as we respond to God's word to allow him to continue to and work in your heart and give you a moment to deal with him and allow him to deal with you. How might he, by his spirit this morning, be cutting through some of the blindness? I'm going to pray and then we're going to give you some time to just reflect, to consider him and his invitation and what it is you really want. And then together we're going to respond and we're going to respond in a few ways. For those who have believed upon Jesus through repentance and faith, you're going to be invited in a very physical and tactile way to remember the one true God who is, the one who created everything out of nothing and sustains everything we know moment by moment with a word from his mouth, the same one who entered into creation, taking on flesh, Enduring weakness and temptation, suffering hostility to the point of death, even death on a cross, all so that by God's grace, 
you might shower us with mercy. Cleanse us from sin. Secure a forever with him for us. Pour his spirit out upon his people. Take up residence in our hearts that we might abide with him and keep company with him moment by moment and know rest for our souls. To know what it is to live day by day free and light with him. It's stunning as you come forward for those who have believed upon Jesus to come forward and take a piece of bread remembering his body broken, his blood shed. It's stunning if you just think about it how much we ignore neglect the invitation to be with him and yet he stands ready to restore it. Ready to restore the desire. Ready to restore the connection. But I'm going to pray. We're going to spend a moment reflecting and then we're going to respond to Jesus together. So let me pray and then we'll, we'll let you be. Holy Spirit, we need you to do what only you can do. You need to make us desperate for what is only truly necessary, truly good, and truly secure for our soul. The only place for our soul to be satisfied and at peace. We need you to continually expose our addictions to the hurry, our addictions to the busy, our, our, our addictions to the do more and be more picture of the good life that only leaves us anxious and, and hurried and troubled and disconnected from you, not enjoying you and knowing the rest and the freedom that comes from you. We need your exposing work, Holy Spirit, and your empowering work to help us deny the hit that our old self gets with each thing that we do. Make us desperate for true life. We ask that you do this in Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.